Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as we record on January 7th, the Washington Post is calling for Donald Trump's removal from office, to which one might respond, you think? Media who egged on Trump's candidacy trivialized his venality, and normalized as extreme but within range, his and his party's every anti-democratic outrage are poorly placed to take principled umbrage when that juggernaut takes the course that everyone and their mother said it would. Headlines suggesting the insurrection at the Capitol was the Trump era's last gasp suggest a continued refusal to acknowledge the multiple factors that drove and abetted it that go well beyond Trump and are going nowhere with Trump's deposal today or in two weeks' time. Some say the deferential police treatment of rampaging white nationalists who brought their own gallows, as opposed to the abuse that routinely meets nonviolent black and brown protesters, betrays a double standard. Our guest says no, it reflects the single standard of white supremacy. We'll talk about coverage of the January 6th attack on the Capitol with political scientist Dorothy Benz. And speaking of law enforcement, we'll also hear briefly from activist attorney Mara Verhayden-Hilliard of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. They're demanding an investigation of federal and local police planning and response to yesterday's events. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. A British judge denied the Trump administration's request for the extradition of Julian Assange to the U.S., which wanted to charge the WikiLeaks founder under the U.S. Espionage Act to as much as 175 years in prison. Judge Vanessa Baraitzer determined the conditions in which Assange would be held, including virtual isolation from all other human beings, would make him a high risk for suicide, making his extradition oppressive under British law. That makes the ruling, as Marjorie Cohn notes for Truthout, an indictment of the U.S. prison system, but no challenge to the Trump administration's effort to criminalize national security journalism. Cohn reminds that this is the first time a journalist has been indicted under the Espionage Act for publishing truthful information, that journalists are allowed to publish material illegally obtained by a third person if it is a matter of public concern, and that the U.S. government has never prosecuted a journalist or newspaper for publishing classified information. Yet Assange and WikiLeaks are charged with obtaining and publishing classified material provided by Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning, including field reports from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, recording many more civilian casualties than reported, the Guantanamo files that detailed U.S. government torture and abuse of 800 men and boys in violation of the Geneva Conventions. And in 2007, the collateral murder video, in which a U.S. Army Apache helicopter gunship fires on unarmed civilians in Baghdad, killing at least 18, including two Reuters reporters, and injuring two children. The video, Cone notes, in which an Army tank drives over and bisects one of the bodies, 
portrays the commission of three separate war crimes prohibited by Geneva and the U.S. Army Field Manual. Owen Jones in The Guardian spells it out, quote, The U.S. war machine depends on being able to airbrush out of existence the brutal human realities. If innocent civilians can be silently killed without consequences, then there is nothing to stop even more suffering the same fate. Close quote. Some had hoped that Trump would include Assange among the pardons and commutations issued in his last days in office, and it was noted pointedly that not only did he decline to do that, but at the same stroke, he did pardon four Blackwater military contractors for the sort of war crimes Assange helped bring to light. It would be a grave error, though, to consider those pardons only by way of contrast with Assange. The four Blackwater guards were jailed for a 2007 massacre in Baghdad's Nasur Square, an unprovoked attack on an unarmed crowd that injured 20 Iraqi civilians and killed 17, including a medical student driving his mother on errands and a nine-year-old boy named Ali Kanani tagging along with his father on a trip to his aunt's house. The guards' claims of an ambush didn't hold up, and as Thomas O'Connor, a member of the FBI evidence response team that investigated, detailed recently for CNN, the juries finding the guards guilty of murder, manslaughter, and weapons charges represented some measure of justice for the deceased, the injured, and their families, now stripped away by Trump's pardon. The U.N. Human Rights Office also deplored the move, stating that, quote, victims of gross human rights violations and serious violations of international humanitarian law also have the right to a remedy. This includes the right to see perpetrators serve punishments proportionate to the seriousness of their conduct, close quote. Army helicopter gunships firing on unarmed civilians, including those who come to the aid of the civilians they just shot, Private military using machine guns, grenade launchers, and a sniper on a crowd of innocent men, women, and children in a public square. Those are the sort of images that go through some of our heads when we hear, as blogger Left Eye on the News noted, CNN's Wolf Blitzer, who, watching yesterday's events in D.C., said, quote, What I'm worried about, God forbid, is violence. Close quote. They really ought to be more specific. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. People saw for themselves the boggling scenes, crowds of Trump supporters storming the halls of Congress, busting into offices, yelling for lawmakers to come out trying, minimally, to disrupt the ceremonial electoral count declaring Joe Biden president. But the story will be, is being, shaped by news media in subtle and unsubtle ways. Will media not just denounce Wednesday's incredible actions, but trace them to their societal and institutional roots, and then go on to act, to report and investigate and challenge and demand, as though they really understood those connections. Confronted with such boundary-breaking in multiple senses, many people will want to hear that it was just a small, fringe group of zealots, 
abetted by a few law enforcement bad apples in service to an aberrational individual president who's anyway on his way out. Will corporate media sell the story that things got scary for a minute, but belief in the system is the way to safety? Joining us now in media rest, it's just January 7th, is political scientist Dorothy Benz. A writer, organizer, and strategist, she has many years of work in frontline struggles here in the U.S. She joins us by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome back to Counterspin, Dorothy Benz. It's great to be here. Well, my brain at first sort of went to language. You know, is protester the best label when the target is the democratic process? Is chaos the most evocative description for a planned and predicted action with some measure of evident official sanction? Now I'm reading unprepared. Everyone was unprepared. But there are deeper questions about corporate media's role here just to throw a dart, while they've recently begun to qualify it, elite media spent years referring matter-of-factly to voter fraud, despite its virtual non-existence, because they simply had to suggest a Democratic equivalent to evidence of Republican voter suppression, lest they be accused of bias. So the idea that you can just declare fraud without evidence has been well established by the press itself. That's one of the things I'm thinking of. What are some of the things that are coming to your mind as you look at this early stages coverage? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is Masha Gessen's warning four years ago after Trump was elected when they said, believe the autocrat. And in the intervening four-plus eternal years, as the left and as Black Lives Matter activists and immigrant rights advocates have raised the alarm over and over again about rising political violence, about the profoundly anti-democratic, racist policies of the administration, we have been called alarmists. We have been told it's not that bad. We have been told, you know, basically to, to calm down. And we could see this coming, as could anybody actually who's been on social media for the last three or four weeks. This violent piece of insurrection was planned openly on encrypted channels. There were, I saw yesterday on Twitter, there was merch. There were people in T-shirts that said Civil War, January 6, 2021. So unprepared and surprised is the last thing that anyone should have been, whether that's the Capitol Police or the media covering this story. Absolutely. Well, many people have noted, you know, refused to deny, you could say, that everything would have been different yesterday from beginning to end, including before yesterday, as you're noting, if these people were black or were brown or were disabled, you know, really anything but what they were. I would add that that would extend beyond the day. You know, had these been black people, there would be real world lasting repercussions for all black people, right? And if you complained, anyone, all anyone would need to say would be like 1621, man, you know. Mm -hmm. The point is talking about how differently they would have been treated. If they were black, say, it's not a rhetorical exercise. It's not a game of what if. You know, that contrast is really the story, right? 
It is, and it goes well beyond the obvious, I mean, so obvious that even some of the mainstream media has noted it, that Black Lives Matter activists would have been treated differently, that, you know, Native Americans defending their land and their legal rights who were water hosed in sub-freezing temperatures at Standing Rock were treated differently, that activists who were just begging their senators not to kill them by eliminating their health care were ripped out of wheelchairs and thrown in handcuffs. I mean, yes, those are the obvious differences as opposed to the kid glove treatment that, that the white nationalists got yesterday. But the deeper problem is really the entire white nationalist project that, you know, as you alluded to in the introduction, this whole venture rests on the fact that the police were so-called unprepared. I saw that word several times in the media coverage. It's not that they were unprepared, it's that they were prepared for white nationalists, which to them is not a crisis in the same way that black people demanding rights is, or that people insisting that public health care and national health care should be a thing. The problem goes much deeper there, and it is both a problem of how we have governed and a problem of how the police and the military have been central to white supremacy. Structurally, foundationally, ideologically, the function of the police has always been to defend the system as it exists, and the system is a white supremacist system. The ruling power started 500 years ago with settler colonizers. It went on to include genocide, slavery, strike-breaking in the capitalist, in the more modern capitalist era. It has never included defending democracy. That is a central understanding of, of how the police work. They weren't overwhelmed. You know, they knew. They just didn't think it was a problem. I can't keep playing that imagine if game because I'm really thinking every black candidate forever would be side eyed, you know, you know, by the media. So if you don't win, are you gonna are your people gonna riot? We know that you all don't really believe in democracy. I don't think media as oh my gosh, as they are right now, I don't think they're really taking on board the the counterfactual that they're sort of thinking about. And then more cynically, I sort of think in contrast, there won't be the same kind of repercussions for people who not just look like the insurrectionists from yesterday, but who think like them, you know, except that maybe media might seek them out, you know, to say, you're the good Trump dead ender, you know, Um, you know, what makes you tick? Why didn't you storm the Capitol? Yeah, I saw a comment this morning from Ben Ehrenreich, who was talking about the media label of a mob, right, reaching for sort of a, a classist term, instead of calling them fascists or or neo-Nazi or racist or white supremacist, and not calling them just protesters because, rightly, they were trying to differentiate between, let's say, Black Lives Matter or healthcare protesters, but not going for the term that's really there. It is difficult to grapple with the language around here. We're in kind of new territory, but what we do see is a an unwillingness to use the terms white nationalist, to use white supremacist in connection with this kind of thing. And I think it is part of media's desire to splinter 
people off to say this really is a fringe and discourage the connections between these people and, in fact, the mainstream of the Republican Party and of many U.S. institutions. I think that that is absolutely right. There's kind of two things going on there in that I would call it a soothing effort to make this not a bigger problem, right? The larger problem is not contextualizing it in white supremacy. The larger problem is not admitting that the entire American project is a white supremacist project. You know, the media did point some fingers at Donald Trump yesterday, rightly, but they seem to exempt almost wholly the entire rest of the Republican Party. This morning on the New York Times' homepage, at least on the app, They had a bunch of quotes, and they were all from Republicans, making them look really principled. You know, Graham, McConnell, and and Leffler saying, you know, well, this isn't the right thing to do, as if these people hadn't been feeding this same right-wing monster for the last four years, not to mention the last four weeks. Right. So that's like one way in which the media is trying to create a respectable-looking set of Republicans in the middle of what is not that – The other is not talking about the larger shift here, which is the assault on democratic norms and the assault on democracy itself, which has moved from sort of a cloaked phase, you know, voter ID laws that we pretend are just about voter fraud or that are somehow, you know, facially neutral or whatever, mass incarceration, which, you know, disenfranchises and create second-class citizenship for, you know, millions and millions of people, moving away from that cloaked phase to this really overt phase and, and kind of testing what works. Like, well, let's throw some lawsuits at it. Let's try that. Let's try to, like, directly shake down some officials and threaten them. Okay, let's try that. You know, in in, uh, in October, Representative Mike Lee floated the term rank democracy, you know, as if, there is such a thing as too much democracy, like, you know, don't let the unwashed actually vote. And that's exactly what it is. And that is actually both a point of continuity and discontinuity with the entire American project. It has never been a country that is a democracy, a true democracy, in the sense of a universal franchise, let alone economic and social democracy. But it has pretended for a long time that it is. And What the right is doing now is testing even that pretense, see how they can proceed. And that is a genuine fascist threat. And that's the danger of portraying this as marginal or fringe or failed, right? Portraying it as a failed attempt because, as you and others have said, that failure doesn't mean the end of it. No, absolutely not. I mean, yes, the, I've seen a couple of headlines about like, well, Trump's on his way out anyway. And, you know, this morning as I was listening to NPR, the reporter or the anchor said, well, what did they think they would accomplish? You know, like they were talking about some, some kids on a playground. And it's it's not, you know, that they failed at overturning the election. It's that they succeeded in mainstreaming fascism and fascist tactics. That's really the point, and I haven't seen that anywhere um, in the mainstream media coverage. You know, similarly on New York One, or in a New York One tweet, I should say, to be exact, somebody was talking about how the property damage this morning was actually quite minimal. Yeah, it might be minimal, although, you know, when property damage happens at, at a Black Lives Matter protest, you would think it was a matter of national security. But 
I responded to that tweet by saying that's besides the point. The assault isn't on, you know, Capitol Hill property. It's on democracy itself. And that really has not been enough of a focus. As a matter of fact, in a general kind of a way, this is, is a continuity from the entire Trump era where media have gone out of their way to normalize fascist tactics and trying to squeeze them, you know, square peg in a round hole kind of a style into the box of normal political imagery, where they describe something like they had a they had a headline yesterday before all this went down. With objection to election results, Hawley puts his party in a bind, you know. So they turned this over anti-democratic effort to overturn an election into an intra-party, you know, political quandary, thus normalizing what is not normal or what should not be normal in an allegedly democratic society. Well, let me just kind of ask you finally, in a way, I mean, in a real way, corporate media's deepest role here is as champions of the capitalist neoliberal system that creates the real grievances that are weaponized and combined with, you know, white supremacist ideology doesn't create the white supremacy, but it drives those grievances that then become so combustible. And for the lesson, therefore, from yesterday to be don't push for real social change because that's fighting, you know, and that leads to violence, you know, for the lesson to be Now, both sides, both, you know, people who bust into the Capitol and Black Lives Matter and, you know, AOC, you know, that balancing. Let's have civility. Let's have colorblindness. Let's look forward and not back. If media come out of the gate and that's the message, I feel like that's almost the most dangerous thing that could happen. It is the most dangerous thing that could happen. If you just shift the language a little bit and you imagine them saying, you know, anti-fascists really need to reach across the aisle and be in a spirit of bipartisanship with the fascists, well, then you would get the problem, right? But And that is exactly the problem. You know, part of it is the media habit, the very bad habit of pretend objectivity that, that puts everything in a he said, he said, frame even when one set of claims is is factually demonstrable and the other set is is demonstrably untrue and, you know, pretending that those things are equivalent, but also just on the surface, pretending that being neutral in the face of a fascist threat is an acceptable journalistic value. It's not. We've been speaking with writer, organizer, and strategist Dorothy Benz. You can follow her on Twitter at DrBenz3. Dorothy Benz, thank you for joining us this week on Counterspin. It's my pleasure. We spoke with our next guest in January of 2017 in the wake of the mass arrest of protesters and journalists at Donald Trump's inauguration and the decision to bring felony riot charges against them. What accounts for how differently D.C. law enforcement behaved yesterday? Mara Verhaden Hilliard is an activist and attorney. She's co-founder and executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Mara Verhaden Hilliard. Glad to be with you. 
So I just have one big question, really, which is what the hell, you know, uh, and why is the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, along with the Center for Protest Law and Litigation, calling for public investigations here? I think what we witnessed yesterday, in addition to being an extraordinary event in U.S. history and our lifetimes, is fully defining of what has been told to us over and over again is the neutral application of law enforcement and law and order. Any of us who have ever demonstrated in Washington, D.C. or been in Washington, D.C. know full well the capacity of the police agencies here to shut down and repress completely peaceful protest. I mean, our clients and we have been subject to kettling, to mass arrests, to projectile weapons, to being soaked in chemical weapons, to tear gas. And there's been no hesitation to use this. The police have all the materiel, the riot gear, the personnel, the weapons, the tactics at their disposal. So that can lead us only to the most obvious conclusion, which is what happened yesterday at the nation's capital could not happen unless the police allowed it to happen. And they did, in fact, allow it to happen. So we are demanding an investigation because there has to be exposure and accountability for every single officer, for every single command official, for everyone who was involved in allowing, facilitating this white supremacist mob violence. Our point here is not calling for police repression. Our goal is not to increase police repression. What we need to do and must do here is expose the nature of police repression. And that is so evident here today. We know perfectly well that if there had been a peaceful demonstration that had come en masse to the Capitol and had tried to enter through the front doors, we would have seen a massacre. I mean, a massacre. And here is a white supremacist group that had been publicly bragging that they were coming to Washington, D.C., that they were trying to smuggle illegal weapons in here. And the idea that the Capitol Police were caught off guard or, you know, were somehow outmaneuvered is completely false. I mean, over 20 years of litigation in the District of Columbia and constitutional rights cases, we have seen over and over again the very sophisticated operation that exists here in planning for major events in the district and for demonstrations and for rallies and for everything. And they have very effective and significant coordinated interagency communications, operation manuals, tabletop exercises, planning, mutual aid agreements. It's simply not possible, particularly in the post-9-11 world at the Capitol, that they lack preparedness or that they lacked knowledge for what was going to happen. We've been speaking with Marva Hayden-Hilliard of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. You can follow their work online at justiceonline.org. We will be following this investigation. Thank you so much, Marva Hayden-Hilliard, for joining us today on Counterspin. I'm glad to be with you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.